0: If you all would please stand for the reading of the scripture. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes out after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Hey, Fathers, have you ever assembled a piece of furniture or equipment yeah, one of those that say um, some assembly required. Uh, you know, I used to grab those things and go to town. Uh, I didn't need those stinking instructions. I can figure this out. How hard can it be, right? I mean, this goes there, that goes here. Um, Only when you get to step 11 and you realize that there were four of those brackets that you installed in step 3, but two of them went one direction and two of them went the other direction, and now you need the one that you put on in step 3 in step 11, and you have to disassemble the entire thing and start over. I wanted to preface uh, my remarks today by saying that We practice inductive, expository, exegetical teaching here at Providence. And that just means that we firmly believe that it's most advantageous, uh, most instructive, most beneficial, most faithful to God and His Word when we take the text as a whole and allow the text to give us its meaning as we go through it the way it was written, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We never want to formulate our doctrine And then go to the text in an effort to prove it, but we want to go to the text and then formulate our doctrine. It doesn't really work so well with IKEA, so let's not make that mistake with the Word of God. My experience with building furniture has taught me to meticulously follow the instructions in those little packets. How much more important is it when we do that with God's Word? So, I say that to say that today, and over the next five weeks, you're probably going to be hearing isolated, probably topical messages during Jason's break, and I just want to say thank God for Jason's gift and his faithfulness to take us week by week, line by line, verse by verse. So, I'm not apologizing, not saying sorry, it's not immoral. To have a topical sermon, but my opinion is it shouldn't be the norm and it should be rare. And on occasions such as today and the weeks coming, um, even when we do present topical messages, they should still be inductive, expository, and exegetical in nature, giving respect to proper biblical hermeneutics. So there's just so much danger when you jump from place to place, like I've been doing for the last two and a half weeks, trying to formulate a message like this, um, it's just an opportunity for you to read your own opinions into things, and I do not want that to be the case today, and um, I pray that you would uh, give us some grace and some prayer, uh, not just for me today, but for the other five guys coming the next five weeks. So I just want to make that disclaimer, and we'll jump into this here today. Today, I want to look at um, God, and particularly God the Father as the perfect Father. You know, who is a child of God? What security is there in being a child of God, and why do we call God our Father? Is God the Father of all men? Well, yeah. And no. He is certainly the progenitor, the creator the originator of every being, every human being that has ever walked the earth, and even those who never survived their mother's womb. But so theoretically, hypothetically, in some sense, we can say that God is the father of all men. But, you know, Psalms tells us that he is angry with the wicked every day. Ephesians 3 tells us that by nature we are the children of wrath. Romans 1 says his wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness, that all men are without excuse, and that he has given some over to their sinfulness. Romans 9 tells us that it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. And later on in that chapter, he says that he bears with the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, And John 3 says, the wrath of God remains on them. So yes, we are all God's children, or more aptly, we're all God's creation. All humans are made in God's image, but there is a difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And those who are not have a completely different father. Some of us have been adopted and redeemed. We see him as our father in a completely different light. John 1 that uh, Wilson read just a few minutes ago in verse 12, it says that those who receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive believe and are given that right or privilege of being children of God. So let's look at that for a minute. Most of my life, I heard the question of salvation phrased as, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? Or have you received Jesus as your Savior? And I think the picture that I conjure up in my mind is that of Jesus standing at that door knocking, and he's just hoping you're going to let him in. He's pleading with you. He's basically begging you to accept him. That represents a concept in which man... Is not only sovereign, but man is also basically good and has the power to choose rightly, that he's saved of his own will and volition by recognizing his need and then taking the necessary steps to alter that eternal destiny. We know from many texts, perhaps most obviously from Romans 5 and actually really the whole first half of the book of Romans, that that's not the case. But let's look at let look at John 1 here. Do we need to receive Jesus? Yeah. Is that reception of Jesus the result of our finally coming to our senses and realizing what's best for us and willing ourselves to salvation? No. <laughs> eh, eh, not so much, but yeah. How do we receive him? Do we go on a quest like the search for the Holy Grail where maybe we have to collect a shrubbery? one that looks nice but is not too expensive? Do we have to prove ourselves worthy? Fortunately, John didn't stop writing there. He qualifies this in the very next phrase. He says, who believe in his name? It's about believing in his name. That's how Christ is received, by grace through faith, not by works, right? It's very tempting for us, I think, to, to take our response out of the equation. And I believe the Bible is perfectly clear. Christ died for his church. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Thank you, Jordan. His sheep hear his voice. Those who don't hear his voice, they're not his sheep. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. But a fundamental aspect of the process is us believing and receiving. It's not to say that we're sovereign in salvation, but it is to say the gift of faith whereby we believe, just like Abraham believed God and was counted righteous, is a gift from God. But it is necessary, right? This is the means that God uses. Believing in, trusting in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is apart from the law, working, excluded, boasting, excluded. Genealogy? Excluded. Grade point average? Excluded. Popularity? Wealth? Excluded. Whatever you think you have that you can do to help, excluded. It's turning from sin and resting in Jesus. He is our salvation. And again, unless there's any confusion or doubts, John spells it out some more in the next few phrases. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, making it clear that it's not about who your earthly father is. It's not about what lineage you descend from. It's not even about your will or your exertion. It's not about proving yourself worthy. It's not about making a deal with God like, you do this and I'll do that and everything will be okay, right? It's about finding a treasure in a field, and then in your joy, going and selling all that's you, all that you have, all that you bring to the table, and going and buying that field. It's giving up everything you have, which consequently is nothing but filthy rags, right? And that is accomplished by the will of God. And for those of us who have by grace through faith received the gift of sonship, those of us who have the right to be the children of the perfect father, you know, Romans 5 says that we have access into this grace. It says, since we have been justified by faith, that's a one-time, once-for-all transaction. We have peace with God through whom? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access access into this grace in which we stand we in our joy rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and as you know we've talked about this many times this is not the hope that we experience when we watch the ball game and we hope our team scores a touchdown or makes a shot or for you ladies I don't know maybe you hope there's not another game on tonight (laughs) or maybe you hope this is the last sports reference that I'll make today it's not Oh, I know. You hope that the bacon turns out just right. Not crispy. You don't want to cook it too long and fall into the heresy of crispy bacon. <laughs> just perfectly chewy. Not limp. You know, just right. That kind, it's not that kind of hope. Sorry, it's not that kind of hope. I hope that, but it's not that kind of hope. But it's security in knowing who's already won the game. And it's not just an inconsequential sporting event, but it is the entirety of human existence, the whole purpose for which the things that were made were made. And we know who wins. And we know without a doubt we are given access to that grace. In Christ, we have the unfettered right to be the children of the Most High. And as the perfect father, he doesn't leave us flailing about hoping that somehow we make the team. But he gives, him, him, he gives us himself as a seal. And through the power and the work of the Spirit, he sanctifies us. So does sanctification always look the same? I mean, it's the same Spirit, right? After all. Hmm? Don't some people struggle with some things that other people just kind of breeze right on through? You know, my sanctification will look different from yours. David Melick is one of the most gracious and humble men that I've ever known. Maybe some of you have heard about him getting hit with an umbrella at the beach. (laughs) It was back when David had blown out his knee playing soccer one Sunday afternoon. I was about five feet from him when it happened. And he just, this was months on from the injury, but he just had surgery. Family had had the long, frustrating drive, traffic, that whole nine yards, and finally had gotten to the beach, and David was now on crutches, and he hobbled out onto the beach to enjoy his family vacation on a very windy day. And after being there for about a whole five minutes, a gust of wind uprooted an umbrella, one of the big ones, Not a little like, oh, it's raining out, no, like, hey, I'm going to the beach and I need to keep the sun off of me, one of those big six-footers. The wind uprooted that umbrella and it came flying at David like a javelin, or perhaps like the stone that David slung at Goliath, only this time it was David that took it right between the eyes. (laughs) I don't know about you, but if that was me, there would have been a few wordy dirts that probably would have escaped my lips, but not our hero. Do you know what the first words out of his sanctified mouth were? I feel so blessed. What a weirdo. I mean, but seriously, he said, if it had been an inch to either side, I could have, lost a, could have lost an eye. I mean, I always thought it was better to enter life with one eye than two eyes being thrown into hell. But seriously, what kind of an example of perspective this is to us. And I don't bring that up to embarrass David. I don't even bring it up to praise David, but we should admire him, I think. I didn't even bring it up to make fun of him. (laughs) I brought it up to say this. I'm not like that. Not to say that I shouldn't be like that or that I can't be like that, but that right now, at present, I'm not like that. I listen to Jason speak week after week. I love it. It's phenomenal. He's the best teacher I know. I can't teach like he does. I watch Steve do more in a wheelchair than I can do with all of my extremities functioning. And rarely, if I ever do, ever hear him complain or make excuses. I don't hear bitterness from him. On the other hand, though, I'm all too well acquainted with the dark places in me. Those places that we don't readily share with each other, that we don't talk about after a Sunday morning message when we're eating lunch together. I know the war that I have in my flesh every day. I know what I'm capable of, and I'd be willing to bet you know what's in the dark places in you and what you're capable of. Well, except for David. But God says, according to, according to Philippians 1.6, that if he started the work in you, that he's going to be the one that completes it. So since when does sanctification become a contest? Jesus Christ says that if you hear his word, the gospel, and you believe, you have eternal life. And you won't be condemned, but right now at this very moment in linear time, you are passed from death into life. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've heard it said, and maybe you have asked yourself the same question, but how can I know... That I really believe. How do I know that I truly believe? You know, we've discussed this with our teen group, and I think we've probably discussed it in in the larger group, the larger body here. But the differences between notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Those were, you know, the way that the reformers broke down the concept of faith after the criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, because they didn't, you know. Have to go through all their hoops To hopefully be just themselves So that they could be justified But rather um, they, they broke it up this way that, that noticia basically means You take notice of something that there's a, a stool in the room, right? And then um, a census being Hey, that stool has four Looks like four strong legs And a relatively flat surface It Looks like it would probably support my weight But fiducia being The act of actually going and sitting on the stool Right? So um, we know that demons take note of the gospel, right? We know that the demons are aware of the veracity of the gospels, but the demons do not know, they do not trust in the gospel. R.C. Sproul said, If you believe in God and are scared of him, all that does is qualify you to be a demon. But maybe there's another illustration that's a little more familiar to us. You know, what about an individual that takes note of the gospel, gives assent to its truth, but then instead of truly trusting in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ alone, they think they need to help. Maybe they think it's their baptism. That's the clincher. Maybe they think it's their, their works that help. Even if it's just like the last 10%, maybe the last 2%, maybe it's the last 1%. But Persons that have that idea are going to hear the most dreaded words that a person could hear from Matthew uh, 7. They may have done what appears to men as mighty deeds for the kingdom, but when they stand before God the judge all dressed up in their finest deeds, they will be like the emperor with his new clothes, buck naked. And sadly, they'll be told to depart. Workers of iniquity. They're not known in the redemptive sense by the Savior. You know what? You can even take two umbrellas to the face and somehow find that inner strength to thank God for both umbrellas. But that does not make you fit for the kingdom of God. Only the righteousness of Christ can do that for you. You know, God is not like us. He doesn't fail to make good on his promises. You know, does he dangle good gifts in front of us, bring us to the saving knowledge of him, give us the faith to believe it and trust it, and then say, well, your faith wasn't really strong enough. You know, I, I know you tried to believe, but I'm sorry. You just didn't do a good enough job of killing that sin. Or, you know, I didn't really buy your confession. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the person that says, I prayed a prayer once at church camp when I was 12. I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about people that struggle every day with the assurance of their salvation. I'm talking about us when we blow it. And the fact that we are in Christ, like Jordan did such a good job this morning pointing out, the fact that we're in Christ is not a permission slip for your sin, for my sin. It's not a hall pass that grants us access into places that are prohibited. It's not an excuse for sin. It's not an excuse for a lack of participation in the work that we've been called to. Let the grace of God motivate us to kill sin. Let the goodness of Jesus drive us to work for this kingdom. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Grace doesn't motivate us to earn salvation or to keep salvation. That's missing the point entirely. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Full assurance motivates us to work. And our work does give us assurance. We who are fathers, we love our children. I mean, hopefully we love our children. Hopefully we love our children without conditions. And his love, God's love and favor, is not based on our performance. You can't perform your way into a better standing before God. Is God pleased with us when we do the right thing? Yeah. Is he pleased when we say no to the flesh? Yes. Should we desire to please God? Yeah. Is God grieved by our sin? Yes. Does he get mad at you when you give in again? No. Does he discipline Those that he loves? Yeah. So does that mean that every time something bad happens in your life that you're under the discipline of God? Maybe we should ask Job about that, right? Incidentally, if you're not here Wednesdays, you're missing a fantastic study. But when you give in yet again to your favorite sin and you consequently feel the weight of your own unworthiness, just like Jordan was talking about this morning, your own unworthiness of the grace in which you stand, that might be the discipline of a loving father. When you reap natural consequences of our failure, that might be the discipline of a loving father. But guess what? The hardships that you experience in life, that's neither the result of your sin nor even of a bad choice, can also be the discipline of a loving father. And even the successes that we enjoy in life are the discipline of a loving father. Jason says all the time, God is not mad at you. Discipline is not equal to punishment. We lump those two ideas into the same category. But discipline is not even equal to chastisement. They're not the same. Chastisement is often part of discipline. But it's not the same. Why? Why? Because there's no condemnation. Jesus bore the entirety of the wrath of the Father for you. He is completely satisfied with Jesus Christ. And as we are hidden in Christ, there's no punishment left for us. Romans 2.4 says that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. The discipline of a loving Father is not comeuppance. It's not settling a score. It's not payback, it's not anger, it's grace upon grace. It's love. It's him working his plan and completing the work that he started in you. It is kindness toward us, even if it's painful and unpleasant in the moment. You see, God the Father is building for himself a people for his own possession. He's preparing a bride for his Son. And just like we have said before, the church is not referred to as a bride because of the similarity to marriage, right? But rather we have marriage to help us understand the relationship between Christ and his church. So also, we don't call God Father because he's similar to our fathers. But rather we have fathers here that are supposed to give us an idea of what God is like. Ephesians 3, he says that, He is the father from whom all families on earth are named. And that word families is actually the word patria, which actually means fatherhood or house or lineage. Um, It's where we get the word patriarchy. Yeah, we we said patriarchy. And where does the word patria come from? The word pater? Pater? which is the word father. He is the father for whom all families on earth are named. And as such, he loves his son. He loves his children. And he has promised to do the job of making you and me into what we will be because he will finish the work that he started. So what do we say, friends? Should we just wallow around in the mud and get all comfy with our sin? Stop it. Don't go back into slavery. You're not a slave. You're not even a hireling. You are a son. You are a daughter. We are, in fact, who he says we are. And you know, my dad was and is a very patient man. I mean, he's no David Melick, but he is very, very patient. Uh, but even he got frustrated with me. <laughs> A few times. (laughs) Never got frustrated with Rebecca for some reason. But you know, I'm not as patient as a father with my children as my dad was with me. I would, you know, when they were little, I would get frustrated with the little things after you show them a time or ten, and they just couldn't quite grasp it. They just couldn't make that pass or dribble that ball the way that I've done a thousand times. But God, the perfect father, he doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't grow impatient with you. He doesn't lose hope that you'll ever figure it out like we do as earthly fathers. Because he is fulfilling his own promise. And he is trustworthy. Because of sin, corruption, tragedy in the world, some children grow up not knowing who their father is. And maybe they grow up with a man in their home that's not their biological father. Maybe they're confused about what a father is supposed to be. Maybe they have a poor image of what a father should be. Maybe they don't know which family, if any, they belong to. But God the Father is not like us. Even the best of us. How dare we could ever think that he'd be like the worst of us. He does not father children and leave them to wonder and doubt and not know whether they're his or not. He doesn't leave us waiting for Judgment Day like some kind of demented Mari Povich show to find out who the real father is. (laughs) Just for the record, I'm not saying that those people without assurance of salvation aren't in Christ or can't be in Christ. I'm just saying if that's the case, it's not because the father withholds his clear and obvious assurance in his word. I can't imagine anything more perplexing, more miserable, more unfair, more unloving than God having made a way for us to be reconciled to him in the person of Jesus, having chosen us us in him before the foundation of the earth, giving us explicit instructions on how the process works, which again, by grace, through faith, and then leaving us to wonder throughout our days, well, did we make it? As if there's some kind of a scale in heaven where your life is measured to see how sincere you were. As if your sincerity or your virtue is the deciding factor. Like some kind of heavenly paternity test. And you're waiting there, you're wringing your hands, you're biting your fingernails, you can't stand. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. And the apostle Peter Povich comes out from behind the curtain with the results of the survey and says, Our test has determined God is not your father. He's not that kind of father. John writes in uh, 1 John and explains what someone who is a child of God looks like. You know, in chapter one, he says, I Write these things so that your joy may be complete. In chapter two, he says, He writes these things so that we may not sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate who is Christ the righteous. And in chapter 5, he writes to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And in verse 20, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Throughout this little book, he gives us example after example of what someone who is in Christ looked like. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but um, you got that list. There it is. Some of these things are repeated many times. Some of them sound similar but are a little different. But I just made a list of 18 things here. He walks in the light, admits that we still sin, keeps his commandments, loves our brothers, doesn't love the world, does the will of the Father, doesn't depart but stays connected, confesses the Son, lets the gospel abide in them, practices righteousness, purifies himself, doesn't perpetually sin, meets needs of those in need, Loves one another, doesn't fear, believes Jesus is the Christ, overcomes the world, and believes in the Son. You can see some of those have very similar phraseology, but they were repeated so many times that I felt necessary to include them. But I don't know about you, but I can look around the room here, and I'm thinking David's the only one that makes it. You know, one thing I know, if this was a contest like, say, the Hunger Games, I'm volunteering David as tribute. (laughs) But seriously, guys, it's easy to look at a list like this and be discouraged because we can't ever seem to measure up. It's hard enough to measure up to the standard that we put in our own head, right? And it may be even harder to measure up to the standards that other people like David set But it's certainly impossible to measure up to the standards set by Jesus himself. And I assure you, even David falls short on that one. (sighs) But dear friends, John didn't write these things to you so that you can know that you don't have eternal life. He didn't write them so that you can hope you have eternal life. He writes these things so that we can know that we do have eternal life. You know, And make no mistake here, folks, this morning. If you're totally okay with not doing the things commanded in this book and you're continually doing the things that are prohibited in this book without any compunction or remorse, that is a definite indication that you're in fact not in Christ. But if you can look at your life honestly and sincerely and you see evidence of these things, maybe not perfection in these things, Because you'll fail, and you may even fail miserably, but you're remorseful, and you're convicted over your failings. That is an indication that these things are true about you, and you can have confidence that God is doing what he promised he would do, finishing the work in you, purifying you as his people, preparing you as a bride for his son. Just like when God made his covenant with Abraham, he walked through the pieces of those animals that were cut into all by himself. Hebrews 6:13 through 20 says this: For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on your performance. It's based and double based on the perfect Father and his promise and his oath. And Christ is our sure and steady anchor. And we who, in our joy, have turned loose of the rags that are our righteousness and fled to him for refuge. We don't flee to our good works for refuge. We don't flee to our morality, we fled to Christ. And yes, as that song says, we will hold fast to that anchor, but praise God when my palms get sweaty, and when my grip fails, that anchor will hold fast to me. But it's in our nature to doubt, right? We know ourselves. We have a long track record as individuals and as a humanity, of royally screwing things up. Starting with our first parents, right on down to little Leon and Silas, my best buddies. But this is what faith looks like for real people. In that passage in Genesis 15 where God cut the covenant with Abraham, R.C. Sproul pointed out that at the beginning of that chapter we see the great example of justification by faith. It's repeated several times in Scripture. Abraham believed God. Verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know in that passage what the next words out of Abraham's mouth are? In verse 8 he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He just believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The next thing out of his mouth is doubt. A conversation I had with my brother recently, we were discussing parenting, and we were talking about our parents, um, you know, very good parents. I thank God for giving me good parents. They raised five children who are godly folks, productive members of society. Um, And you know what? For 48 years now, I've heard how great my parents are from all kinds of people. You know, their success ratio is 5 out of 5 by most metrics, most standards. They're batting a thousand, hundred percent accuracy. That's just because they're perfect parents. You know, for 30 years or more, I believed that lie. I believe that they magically pushed all the right buttons. You know, maybe I wasn't stupid enough to think that they did everything right, but they did way more right than was necessary so that everything worked out right. And I believe that if I, as a parent, could just push all the right buttons like they did, the same would be true for me. And to my shame, I looked at others who were maybe good parents, maybe others who were okay parents, but their success ratio wasn't like my parents. So I just figured they probably pushed a few wrong buttons. Or maybe they just pushed one wrong button, they just pushed it at a really bad time. Maybe good, maybe 75%, maybe 50% success ratio by the world's standards or even by the church's standards. It probably meant they didn't do enough. They didn't pray enough. Didn't do enough churchy things enough. Didn't spank them hard enough. Whatever. We who are reformed in our thinking get soteriology right. You know, We embrace biblical election, the depravity of man, there's no good in us. We can't summon the intelligence or moral virtue to choose God. We understand the ordo salutis, and we recognize and reproclaim proclaim the sovereignty of God and salvation. But Sometimes even we often fail to recognize the extent that sovereignty plays in every aspect of our life. If we raise godly children, it's not because we were such great parents. If our children go astray... It's not necessarily because we were bad parents. Certainly there are examples, even here in some of us, and I know this because my children are here, where our failures as parents are grossly and obviously revealed in our children. So I'm not saying throw your hands up and just let whatever happens, happens. No, we are given instructions on how to discipline our children, how to correct them, how to train them in righteousness. And there are certainly general terms, general principles, as we've discussed in our series on Job, where if you do X, then Y will happen. If you get up and you go to work every day and you model a pattern of faithfulness in your life, chances are really good that your children will adopt those same, same values. Our children see the liturgy of our life. So again, for the record, parents, I'm not saying don't worry about your responsibility. What I am saying is that there are no perfect parents. And if you have success as a parent, or if you have parents that are successful, stop patting yourselves on the back and get on your knees and thank God for his grace and his mercy. Is Don Smith a perfect father? Is David Melick a perfect father? Is God a perfect father? Yes. Or wait. Is he? As Hamlet pointed out in that conversation that we were just, I was just talking about, if we measured God's success as a father the way the world and even the church typically measure success, what about his children? And forget about us for a second. What about Israel? What a disaster God was as their father. Constantly chasing other gods, constantly rebelling, and it's easy for us. It's always easy for us to point a bony finger at them. But this is what faith looks like. When your children haven't eaten in days, maybe even weeks, you have no water, it's normal human behavior to say, man, we had meat. We ate our fill of bread back in Egypt, and now you've brought us out in the desert to starve to death. I mean, these are people that just saw water stand straight up in the air and they walked through on dry ground and then they saw the greatest army in the world destroyed, but they got hungry and they got thirsty and they doubted and they complained. It's par for the course. It's not right. Not excusing. It's not okay, but we still have our flesh. Job cursed the day that he was born. Abraham implemented plan B with the servant girl. Gideon threw his fleece out. Jacob tricked his brother and his dad and his uncle. Moses lost his temper. David, Solomon, Peter. Peter was one of those guys that was afraid for his life on the sea, a sea where he had spent most of his life up to that point. They said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus said what? O ye of little faith. You know, later on that same sea, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. Great big faith! Until he began to sink. Where did that faith go? Later he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Hours later... I never knew that guy. I never knew the guy. I'm telling you, I don't know him. But when Peter was sinking in the water, he cried out those words that matter the most, right? Lord, save me. And it doesn't matter if you've got simple country boy faith or sophisticated city folk faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed placed in the one who is faithful is enough. R.C. Sproul said, the profession of faith is not the same thing as living by faith. With our faith, there's always a mixture of unbelief and insecurity. It's not a matter of the quality of your faith or even the quantity, but rather the object of your faith. Some people see the glass as half full, while others see the glass as half empty. But what really matters is what's in the glass. When our belief is genuine and is rooted in the person of Christ, he, the perfect father, says he will never turn you away. Not Christ plus baptism. Not Christ plus miraculous works. Not Christ plus anything. Just Christ. In your joy, you sell all that you have and you buy that field. He is that treasure. And salvation is not something that he gives to you. It's not something that he imparts to you. It is who he is. And the faithfulness of God, it's not rooted in the Father's love for us. It's not founded in his compassion for you or for me. Those things are true and they're beautiful. But this promise is built on something even greater. The perfect Father's love for his Son. The Father loves his Son. Number of times the, the Bible refers to the Son as the beloved, Ephesians one three through six he's, that Jordan read this morning. He has blessed us in the beloved. Colossians one six. He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You know, I always thought that when the Bible used those terms, it was talking about the fact that we that Jesus was beloved by us, that He was beloved for, by us on our end, but He is beloved by the Father. John three thirty five. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 5:20 The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10:17 For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. John 15:9 As the Father has loved me so have I loved you. Abide in my love. John 17:24 through 26, I think. may be in them, and I in them. His love for us, based on the Son. Right there, did you see it? Matthew 12, 18, quoting from Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. In all the Gospels, there you see the account of the baptism of Jesus, and in the three synoptic Gospels, you see this phrase, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And on the mountaintop outside of Caesarea Philippi, with his inner circle, James, John, and good old Peter. Matthew 17, 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The law and the prophets can't save us. They just point us to the one that can. Your righteousness can't save you. It can't keep you saved. It can't earn you more favor. Only the perfect son loved God by the perfect father, can do that. The father loves you because he loves his son. The father is pleased with you because he is pleased with the son. Sinclair Ferguson said, When the Trinity said, let us make man in our image, he did so in a way that would reflect the eternal bond of the father, son, and spirit. How deep the father's love for us? Yes. Yes. How deep, But that is merely a reflection of how he loves the Son. The Father loves the Son. The Father is pleased with the Son. The Father is satisfied with the Son. And the Father loves you, is pleased with you, and is satisfied with you if you are in the Son. If you have in your joy sold all that you have and bought the field. If you have forsaken your filthy righteousness and have fled to him for refuge. We are who he says we are. And he is finishing the work he started. He'll never leave you or forsake you because he is the perfect father. Thank you. David.